Uh, For the rest of us who are in here, we will be continuing in our Isaiah series. We'll be in chapter 43. If you want to turn there and get ready. Um, If you don't have a Bible, we do have some in the back against that wall to the left of the sound booth. Uh, This morning, it's going to be a little hard to follow Pastor Fall Down Freddy, as we heard last week. (laughs) He made the nickname public, so I'm going to use it. But in all seriousness, uh, Pastor Perry uh, did a great job, took us on a brief aside from Isaiah into the gospel according to Luke as we looked at uh, what it looks like to wait for Jesus at different points and different situations in our lives. So if you missed that, you can always uh, check that out. It's online, kingschapel.net. Um, but since it's been a couple weeks since we've been in Isaiah, um, I'll just recap us of the past couple weeks, bring us up to speed. Um, And then uh, we'll get right into our text. So, we're in the second section of the book of Isaiah. These chapters 40 through 55. Um, And Isaiah's attention has turned from the people in the 8th century, kind of looking more at what's happening in in 6th century during their Babylonian captivity. So, though Isaiah is alive and in the 8th century, and he's in Judah... He's writing of events that would take place involving God's people 150 years later. It's important to keep that in the back of our minds as we go through this. So he's really addressing two audiences, right? One, the people presently alive in his day, that they would hear this and they would learn from it. Two, those who end up living through the prophecy as it comes to pass in the 6th century. And we can even add three, us. And and he's writing for the purpose of, of helping God's people... Worship and trust the Lord through all times, which is what we just sang about. (laughs) Trusting and and worshiping as the prophecy is anticipated, as the 8th century people would have, and trusting and worshiping in the midst of the prophecy coming to pass. And Isaiah is writing so that God's people through the ages would be a people full of faith and be a people full of hope. Because they know that their God is with them as they endure all trials. That their God is the one in complete and total control. And and what we've seen is as Isaiah writes to this exiled people, sadly we've seen that God's people aren't aren't looking to him. Their, Their faith doesn't seem to be strengthened. Their hope isn't in God's sovereign hand. Israel's trusting their own idols. They're trusting their own gods. Many gods that pale in comparison to God Almighty, which just leads to God calling them blind and deaf, as we saw in the last chapter, chapter 42. He revealed himself to them, but their attention was elsewhere. And where we left off two weeks ago, it was not the most encouraging picture. But this morning, we're going to get a a really beautiful glimpse at God's faithfulness and God's graciousness toward his people despite their disobedience. Which is probably what we all truly need to hear on account of we can relate more to Israel than we'd probably like to mention out loud. And as we look at chapter 43, we'll we'll go through it through these, these three sections here. We got God's precious people, God's pronounced preeminence, God's promised provision, which we see provision from exile and a provision for sin. So with that said, let's go right to verse 1. Hopefully you had enough time to get there. 
43, verses 1 through 7. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who, called, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Chapter 43 is this wonderful reversal of where we left off in chapter 42, right? 42 leaves us with this image of disobedient Israel, blind and deaf to who God is. But then it changes. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. By all means, it could have said, thus says the Lord, you are finished. There is no hope for you. But that's not what God tells his people. Despite their constant disobedience, despite their consistent neglect, he still loves them. He still claims them as his own, right? He says, I have called you by name. You are mine. The the more time that I spend as a father, the more I completely understand how God is so patient with his people. Like, it was always kind of up here, like, I get it. But, like, when you have now, at this stage of my life, a toddler, I can understand how God can go from saying, "What you're so blind and you're so deaf, what's wrong with you two? I love you. Like, I get it. And it, it, sometimes in a matter of hours, it's back and forth. So what was it? Oh, you know, he's so cute. <laughs> Maybe, I mean, God doesn't look at us and say, oh, you're so cute. Maybe, but um, I get it. The, the more I, I spend time with my daughter, the more I see that mankind is essentially a three-year-old driving God crazy. Um, <laughs> we laugh because it's true. Uh, But despite our poor decisions, despite our our actions, God will still redeem what is broken because we are his. He formed us. He loves us. And we see here that he'll be present with us through all times of trial and tribulation, right? Verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flames shall not consume you. God doesn't promise his people just this easy life, free of all hardship. Trust me and it'll be easy street. That's not what he's saying. But he promises people that he will lead them through the waters, through the rivers, through the fire. He promises to be present through the hardship. And when I think of this picture of water and fire, they're, they're two very powerful things. 
when we were on a vacation this past summer in the Outer Banks, and uh, at one point there was a hurricane out, out in the ocean, which then made for bigger waves in a rip current on the shore. So they had the red flags up. We couldn't go in the water very deep. We still, we still went in like knee dip deep because it's like, I'm not by the ocean very much. I guess I'll chance it. Probably not a wise decision, but again, three-year-old making God crazy. So that's the kind of stuff we do. Um, but when you're just in there, even at, when the waters are that, that rough and you're in just a little bit, you can feel the tug. You can feel the power of the ocean, the, the waves, this, this just mighty force where if you get taken out, forget it. You're powerless to overcome it. That's that, that picture of water. And then I think of this picture of fire and um, the, the, the wildfires out in the West Coast that, that when they flare up, it seems like they're just unstoppable. There's nothing you can do. They're dropping stuff from helicopters. They just keep going. They just keep consuming. And it's either get out and flee or you end up burned because your, your garden hose is not going to do anything. It's the, this tremendous force. And I think the, the people of, of Judah and, and Israel would have realized this imagery. Right? They, they had heard about their ancestors and, and what had happened with the Red Sea and the waters that were split by the Lord, but then that consumed the Egyptian army. And, and the 6th century audience who Isaiah is addressing would be very aware of fire. They're alive during the time of the Babylonian king, King Nebuchadnezzar. And he has a fiery furnace where he's placing people if they did not worship him. If they did not bow down to the statue he erected. And if you don't know the story in the book of Daniel, there's, this, there's three Jewish men who refused to bow down and worship the statue of the Babylonian king. The name Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they say, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand. And I believe these three men have the confidence in their Lord to say it because of words like this that Isaiah has left for them. And and other texts that are like it. And sure enough, miraculously, they're, they're thrown into the fire to be burned alive, but they're not consumed. They're, they're actually walking around. They're taking a stroll through flames. And there's, there's not three of them. There's a fourth that the Babylonian counselors, they look and they say, it's one who looks like the son of the gods. Which is some debate on who exactly if it, it was. Some people believe it was a Christophany, a physical appearance of the pre-incarnate Jesus, or it was an angel. But regardless... We know it's God who preserved his servants in the midst of that fire. He's with us through the trials. And why would he do that? Why would God do that to blind and deaf people? Verse 3 tells us, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. I love that despite that all that God has against his people and their idolatry, he still looks at them and says, you're precious, you're honored, I love you. Nations have been conquered and will be conquered to preserve the ones that God loves. 
He mentions Egypt. It's possible that's a reference back to Exodus or Moses. That time of Moses that we just talked about with the Red Sea. Or it's talking about the, the nations that the Persian Empire will make their conquest through as they approach Babylon. As they possibly go through Egypt, Cush, and Seba. And then arise at, arrive at Babylon with King Cyrus eventually conquering. Because it's the Persians who eventually allow the Jewish exiles to return home. So we know it's going to happen. So Isaiah could be either bringing their memories back or or telling them something that will happen. Or both. It could be both. But whichever the case, God is communicating how valuable his people are to him. The things that are of utmost value are the things that are precious. And it doesn't matter what Israel has done. There is this preciousness in the ones that God has called to be his people. Remember, we're not treasured and valued by, valued by God because of what we've done. We're treasured and valued by God because of who we are. Yes, they were blind and deaf. They weren't seeing the God who was in front of their face. But just because his children don't understand doesn't make them any less valuable. I didn't understand a lot growing up. I drove my mother nuts. Believe it or not, I did. I did. I was quite the rascal. But she still continued to love me, still continues to love me. We drive God crazy on a daily basis, and he still looks upon us and says, precious, honored, loved. And he tells them, tells them for the second time, fear not. The first time he said, fear not, for he has redeemed them. They will be saved from their enemies. Here he's saying, fear not. Again, I am with you. God's presence is with his people. He will bring all of his people scattered to the north, south, east, and west together. And notice here he calls them sons and daughters. Not just people, not just random people, family members. His sons, his daughters. There's this familial relationship who he formed and he created personally. And he's preserving them. Why? For his glory. That's why they were created. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, who I formed and made. Family, we do not just exist for some just random happenstance. We're not the result of cells luckily forming together that eventually we became humans. We were created with a purpose. We were created to bring glory to the one who formed us, who knew who we are before the foundations. He's like, we've, this analogy in scripture, he's like the potter who makes this fine vase and he, and he makes it and he cherishes it. And that vase is a, is a testimony of the glory of the one who made it. The vase didn't make itself, the, the pot didn't make itself. The potter did, and the potter deserves the glory. Yet that pot is still valuable. We have value. We've been made by the ultimate and great potter, our Lord. Israel didn't create themselves. God did. Israel won't save themselves from exile, but God will. He's the only one capable. And so what we see next is God calling these precious people 
to declare his truth, that he alone can save. Verses 8 to 13. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. Let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant, servant who I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed, when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. I am God. Also henceforth I am he, there is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? See, verses 1 through 7 is, is God reminding his people of who he is to them and who they are to him. And now he's calling all the nations together and his people into this courtroom before him. As he demonstrates who he is over all things. We start here in verse 8, the way he left off 42, reminding them of their deafness and their blindness Knowing that, yeah, they have eyes. Yes, you have ears. You come. And then he calls all the other nations to assemble. And he has this pointed question to ask. He says, who among them can declare this and show us the former things? And what God seems to be asking is, who among you, out of all your people, nations, and all your idols, can declare prophecies of what will come to pass? Who, who can do like I have said? And who among you can tell of the past and of the future? And he gives a challenge. He poses a question that really no one can, can answer. No one can meet the challenge that is put out there. He's inviting them to bring their witnesses because there's no one to testify. But then he turns his attention to his people, the people of Israel. And he says, you... You are my witnesses. You are my servant whom I have chosen. Once again, affirming their position as his people. And then he says three important things about them. That they should know, that they should believe and understand. Know, believe, and understand that I am he. Some might think these are synonyms being listed just for emphasis, but they, they are distinct. They're, they're three very distinct things. And we start with this word, know. What does it mean to, to know? The Hebrew word here, and I'm not making this up, is yada, which sounds an awful lot like yada. Which, if yada means nothing, then you need to check out a show called Seinfeld. There's an entire episode called the yada yada. And you just yada yada over things to skip skip. The middle part. Yada, yada. You're probably wishing, can we yada, yada, I say 43 here and get to the end of the sermon. No, we can't. But this word no or this word yada means essentially to recognize, to, to see. You, you know, you, you can see it, you recognize it. So firstly, God is saying his witnesses are to recognize 
who he is as God. Acknowledge. Secondly, he says they're to believe. To, to believe is to affirm what they know is absolutely and true. Like, yes, I affirm it. I know and I believe. I actually trust in what you're saying. I can know something cognitively but not believe it. God's witnesses know him and believe in him and they understand who he is. Limitedly, obviously. We can't fully grasp all of God is, but they have an understanding of his character and how he works. There is a, a comprehension they know, believe, and understand. They, they get it. Now think of it like math. I can understand and I can know math exists. And I can believe that math works. But not until I practice it and actually learn the different operations of math do I actually understand it. I actually get to the point where I can show my work, right? Until you get to imaginary numbers. Don't understand that. Lost me there in pre-calc. I think that's what it was. I don't know. It was a very long time ago. But I, I understand the basics, right? Addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. And some algebra. Throw some letters in there. I got it. I understand it. I can use it. There's, there's, there's different aspects of it. Know, believe, and understand. They should know, believe, and understand who he is, that he says he is. And who is he? Well, he tells us, Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. He is the preeminent God who exists eternally. No beginning, no end. There was no God, or anything for that matter, created before him, and there will be no one after him. He is Yahweh, and there's no God, and there's no Savior apart from him. Know that, believe that, understand that. He declared and saved and proclaimed before any idols existed. He's, he's telling his people, you know this. Be my witnesses. All right, to be a witness is to, to testify of something of something that's happened or who someone is. You're a witness. You can testify to it. And he's calling his people to testify to who he is to these nations who are worshiping false idols, who are putting their trust in all the wrong people and places and things. Now, as I was reflecting on this chapter, I couldn't help but hear the, the call of Jesus on his church in the New Testament. He's calling us to do the same thing, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. We can't make disciples of all nations if we're not witnessing and testifying of who God is and what the gospel is to them. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And in Acts 1.8, he tells the apostles to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth. So though the covenant that Jesus makes is a new covenant, and the revelation of salvation in Christ is more clearly seen, the call for God's people stays the same. If you know me, believe in me, and understand what I've done, be my witnesses. Tell the world. 
Show them how great I am. I love that uh, our King's Kids students, some of them have t-shirts, and on the back, it just has a scripture reference. That's Matthew 5, 14 to 16. They don't have it completely written out. It would take up a good chunk of shirt, but they have the reference. And it's, you are a light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's what it means to be a witness. To live in in such a way that the only response is for people to, to see God must be the one at work. This must be God doing it. And give glory to him. And all that we say and all that we do, it should be evident, should be clear that we're God's people. Isaiah 43, 7 says we were created for his glory. Our God is consistent. He doesn't change. And the message then is the same as the message now. He doesn't change, and and sadly, mankind doesn't seem to change all that much because we still need to hear the same thing that the 6th century people needed to hear, the same thing that the 8th century people in Judah needed to hear, the same people that we could always, we go back to Adam. We all need to hear the same thing. God's in control and we are not. We need to trust in him and tell the world the same thing. And we're still going to need to be reminded of that until the day that we're finally with him in glory. Are we living as witnesses to his glory? Are we declaring the truth of who he is? Are we letting our light shine? And the last thing I want us to see in this section is God's ultimate power and sovereignty. Right? Verse 13. Also henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back. The same hands that held his people and protected his people hold the world in order. If God brings something to pass, there's, there's none who can contest it or thwart his plans. No one. No one can undo what he has done. Who can turn it back, he says. Right? There's, no, there's no Thanos in an infinity gauntlet with a time stone and a reality stone, and you can manipulate things. They can alter reality. If you don't understand that reference, Avengers, Infinity War, Endgame, you'll get it. I'm helping you. I'm helping you. Thanos snaps. It's a thing. There is none of that. That's fiction, right? But the reality is we have a God who we cannot thwart. We cannot alter what he has done. He is sovereign over all things. What he decrees to happen, happens. And he, he phrases this truth as the rhetorical question. And who can turn it back? He doesn't pose this question with any answer being anticipated. He knows the answer. Not a one. He is the Lord. There is none before him, none after him, and none that can contend with him. That should give us confidence. That should have given Judah and Israel confidence. Paul says emphatically with confidence in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Amen. That's the God we serve. Do we see that this morning? Or are we blind and deaf to the beauty and the power of God? I hope not. 
I hope this passage opens our eyes and opens our ears. The preeminent one looks on his people, his precious people, and he calls them to pronounce his power to the world around them. And as we move into our last section, Isaiah continues as he tells them of the the provision that God will then supply for them. So we look first at the provision from exile. Verses 14 and 15. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoiced. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Now this verse in 14 is actually the first explicit mention of Babylon since chapter 39 when Isaiah told Hezekiah this would happen. To which case Hezekiah was fine with it because it wasn't going to happen to him. It was only going to happen to his, his descendants down the line, which was pretty messed up. But that's what mankind does. Um, but he told them that in 39, and now he's saying explicitly, I will send to Babylon. He's, he's promising that Babylon will not have the final say or the final victory. And I just love the progression of this chapter. He's emphasizing the preciousness of his people. He then shows them, improves his power all, of all, over all things, and then he's going to use that power to save the precious people. He'll take the mighty nation of Babylon and have them fleeing like fugitives from their own empire. And again, it doesn't say it explicitly here, but it's, I believe he's pointing to this Persian army who would eventually come and take them out. These, these ships that they rejoiced in, they're going to flee in. Throughout history, whenever there's a nation that, that thinks they're big, They're the big dog. There seems to be a bigger dog or a smarter dog that comes and takes them out. We know it's by God's hand in things, but if people's hope is rooted in the strength of their army, the size of their walls, the charisma of their rulers, that hope is shattered. Because as big as your dog is in the fight, it's small in comparison to God. And it doesn't matter whether we're talking about ancient Babylon or the present-day USA, God is still bigger. So our hope above all things has to be in the one who's over all things. Assyria trusted in their strength. God humbled them. Took out 185,000 in two seconds. Babylon trusted in their strength, and God allows them to be conquered. He alone is the Lord He alone is the redeemer and hope for Israel, and he needs to be for us. Isaiah then draws their attention back to this familiar picture, drawing them back to to Egypt. Verse 16, he says, Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, Army and warrior, they lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. God rescuing his people from slavery under the mighty hand of Pharaoh was an event that established just how precious his people are to him and how powerful he was to protect them. And he's using this past imagery with present tense words 
right? He's saying he makes a way in the sea. He brings forth chariot and horse that they lie down. He's not talking as then, but he's talking now with a reference to then because in this time, he's done it once, he will do it again. That's what he's saying. I saved you back when I called you and I can continue to do it. He would make a way for his people in Babylon. And that's why he tells them, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? He's basically saying, don't only look in the rearview mirror. Don't just keep looking back. I'm still at work. God is still the same God as he was then. He's like, I'm doing a new thing. Don't you see that? And I will surely provide a way in the wilderness. I will make rivers flow through the desert. I will meet your needs. I don't, you don't need to worry. That's the promise he's giving these exiled people. The wild beasts will honor me. The jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. This provision he is is giving so that the people he created, that he formed, would do what they're created to do. Glorify him. Declare his praise. God shares his glory with no one. And, And he will save their people from their plight, that he might be glorified. Because Israel's greatest problem is not their captivity. It never has been. It's been a problem of the heart. Which is why God not only promises provision from exile, but he also provides provision for sin. And verse 22 shows us Israel's neglect of their God. He says, Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob. But you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I mean, after declaring to his people his love for them, his calling on their lives, Showing them how he would save them. He flips the script. He's saying, all that I've revealed to you, all that I'm telling you, as much as you know who I am and how I love you and what I've done and what I will continue to do, you don't call on me. Oh, Jacob, but you have been weary of me, oh, Israel. You don't pick up the phone. You never call. Why don't you ever call me? Right? Israel had the same problem with worship that we tend to have ourselves. They had in front of them, plain as day, who God is. They see it, and yet they miss it. As do we. And God tells them in his frustration, he says, I didn't burden you with offerings or or weary you with frankincense. The, the, the sacrifices and the, and the offerings and all the aspects of the ceremonial laws were, were not meant to weary and bog down Israel. But it was intended to give them a, a hope for the forgiveness of their sins. It was supposed to draw them closer to God. 
But the opposite was happening. They were drawing, they were going further and further away from God. Their, their actions, their sins were actually, as it says here, burdening God. They were wearying God with how they were living. It's not, not how it was supposed to be. Another reference, another, another movie reference. I think of Star Wars Episode 3. Obi-Wan Kenobi is looking at Anakin Skywalker, who's been consumed with the dark side. They're fighting on a lava planet. It's pretty crazy. He says, you were the chosen one. It was said you would destroy the Sith, not join them, bring balance to the Force, not leave it in darkness. And here it seems like God has communicated to Israel that you were supposed to be my witnesses in the world. You were my precious chosen people who I redeemed, I set apart. You were supposed to point the world to me for my glory, not join them in neglect. Israel, your, your sins are burdening me. I'm weary with your iniquity. And now for those who, who might say, I'll take, I take the God of the New Testament, but I don't really like the God of the Old Testament because the God of the Old Testament is all full of like anger and judgment and no grace and all that. We're about to see what grace looks like here. God has laid out how Israel has completely neglected him, pushed him to the side, yet we still have verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will and I will not remember your sins. He, he tells them these previous verses, here's how you blow it time and time again but I will blot out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will remember not your sins. That's grace. That is grace. And that is in the Old Testament. And that is the same God who calls us by grace to believe in him today. And in in verses 26 to 28, he says, put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned, your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. Basically, what he's, he's saying here is, you can try and argue your case. You can try and say why you deserve, uh, deserve to be spared based on your own merit. But it's, it's futile. Adam sinned, your mediators sinned. The result should be judgment. But God doesn't save them based on what they do, based on their merit. Even in this passage, hundreds of years before Christ would give his life on the cross, he says the basis for blotting out their sin is for his own sake. It's for for his own purposes, by his own means. So why would God show such grace to people who clearly neglect him, push him to the side, who are wearying him with their transgressions? Well, we already saw the why. Back in verse 4. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. God doesn't show his grace toward us based upon whether we get it right or not. That wouldn't be grace. He shows us his grace to show his love so that his people would respond to that grace in faith and belief so that we would know, believe, and understand who he is and what he has done. 
I think all of us here, in one way or another, can relate to, to Israel. We've either neglected to the worship of God for the worship of other things in our life, idolatry, or we've gone through the motions of trying to do the right things, but with no heart, just to fulfill the, the burden of doing what you're supposed to do. Or, or, or in fear, we've pushed God aside. We, we, we don't want to do what we're called to do and be witnesses. We've shied away from speaking up for Christ. One of those three categories we can all probably find ourselves in. But, but the good news is there's grace. God extends forgiveness to those who repent and turn towards him. Because we're precious, loved. We are his children. And though we weary him with our sin and burden him with our iniquities, he receives us back in his arms with forgiveness. You might be here this morning relating more to the nations who just think, I can do this. I got it covered. I don't need a God in my life. I can do my own thing. I can, I can take care of, of anything I need to. But yet you're here burdened. You're here weary. Because we weren't designed to be our own saviors. We don't make very good gods. And if you're here today, and that describes you, there's also grace. You can stop trying to be your own God. You, can, you don't have to have the, the burden to try to justify yourself. That can be lifted in trusting in Jesus who bore the burden on your behalf. Jesus is the ultimate promised provision for sin. Who came into a world full of people who had forgotten God. John 1, 9-13 says the true light which gives light to everyone, that's Jesus, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, or of man, but of God. Jesus willingly gave his life on the cross to make atonement for sin, even though he was rejected. Why? For his own sake. And for all who would believe on the name, who, who gave his life to blot out transgressions, they have the right to become children of God. The right to feel the love of God as a father who will walk with them through the hardship of light. The right to know that God holds the universe in his hands, holds them, and he has no beginning and no end. And he looks at them and says, I called you by name. You are mine. You are precious, honored, and loved. In Christ, we have the right to receive that. So this morning, we're going to take communion. We're going to take communion because that's exactly what this table points us to. And this table is for anyone this morning who's here, who's, who's trusted in Christ, who would call on him as Savior and Lord. But this table is a reminder of the price that was paid for our sins. The price that was paid that they would be blotted out and remembered no more. This table is a reminder of the, the love that God has for his people as he gave his only begotten son to save lost sinners who were blind and deaf. Use this time. Look inward. Confess and repent of the sins in your lives. Maybe sins of commission that you've done willingly against God. Those sins of omission where you just you haven't done what you know you should have done and you just pushed it to the side out of whatever, fear of man, whatever the case is. Confess and repent, and then come to the table. Be reminded by the broken 
bread and the the cup that there is grace. There is grace in the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. So the band can come up, and they're going to play for a little while we just spend some time in quiet confession and repentance. When it comes time to take the bread and the cup, we're going to come down these little outer aisles here and go back through the, the other aisles back to our seats. Confess, repent, come, take of the elements, bring them back to your seat and hold on to them and we'll all partake together uh, after this next song. But let's pray together. Father, we do, we do just thank you for your grace to us. Oh, how undeserved it is. How blind and deaf we can be but how good you are to open our eyes, to soften our hearts, to give us ears to hear. And Father, I just ask that you would do just that, that your spirit would be at work in us as your word that has went out is is sifting through our hearts and our minds, Lord. Impress it into our souls. Help us to remember day by day, you are the one who created all things, that you were before all things that we've ever seen, and you will be there long after. You are eternal, but you still love us. You still call us precious. Lord, help us to see the things in our lives that are are keeping us from you, the sins that are separating us from that, that, that seem to be clouding our sight. Help us to confess those, repent those, get those out of the way, that we may see clearly who you are and your love the love that you, you made magnified in Christ as he gave his life on the cross. cross. And Father, help us to then be witnesses for your glory, that we would point other people to know that you are God and there is no savior besides you. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus, amen.